Father, we thank you so much for your word. We're studying about it in Sunday school this morning, and it is an amazing thing that you would speak to us. And we praise you for it, Lord. We want to live by your word. We want it to be our food and our sustenance. Lord, we want our strength to come from your word. Lord, our strength for life. Our strength, Lord, to to live, to take on the responsibilities and the callings that you have put on us. Lord, we want that foundation that we have to be your word, Lord. Not, Not our way of thinking, not our ideas or our opinions, but your truth, Lord. We want to submit ourselves to it. We want to be corrected by it. Lord, we want to grow so much. And as our Father, you have given us exactly what we need for our lives in your word. I pray we would be able to see that this morning, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 34. John 12, 34. We're going to start this morning. I'm actually going to start by reading uh, a little excerpt from this book here. This book is called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Um, this is a book that I highly recommend. It is. It, it might be the best book I've ever read on trials and suffering because he, he pinpoints exactly, precisely the central issue when it comes to your trials and your sufferings. Do you trust God or not? Do you trust God or not? Do we recognize that He is sovereign, that He is powerful over His creation, which means that He is powerful over the trial, the thing that brought the suffering into your life? Do we trust God the way that we read in the Psalms where the psalmist said that you have protected us, you've overthrown our enemies, and then you didn't, God? Do we trust God? That's exactly what the Bible teaches. It's what we're going to see today. And and so I want you to listen to this section here uh, from the book. It's from the chapter entitled, Can You Trust God? He says, during the time I was working on this chapter... I experienced one of those periods of adversity when I found it difficult to trust God. Mine happened to be a physical ailment that exacerbated a lifelong infirmity. It came at a very inconvenient time and for several weeks would not respond to any medical treatment. During those weeks, as I continually prayed to God for relief, I was reminded of Solomon's words, consider what God has done Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Ecclesiastes 7.13. God had brought a crooked event into my life, and I became acutely aware that only he could straighten it. Could I trust God whether or not he straightened my crook and relieved my distress? Did I really believe that a God who loved me and knew what was best for me was in control of my situation? Could I trust Him even if I didn't understand? Further, could I encourage others to trust Him 
when they are in the throes of emotional pain? Is the whole idea of trusting in God in adversity merely a Christian shibboleth that doesn't stand up in the face of the difficult events of life? Can you really trust God? I sympathize with those who find it difficult to trust God in adversity. I have been there often enough myself to know something of the distress, the despair, and the darkness that fills our souls when we wonder if God truly cares about our plight. I have spent a good portion of my adult life encouraging people to pursue holiness, to obey God, yet I acknowledge it often seems more difficult to trust God than to obey Him. I'm going to read that sentence again because that one hit me. Yet I acknowledge it often seems more difficult to trust God than to obey Him. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. The circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational and inexplicable. The law of God is readily recognized to be good for us, even when we don't want to obey it. The circumstances of our lives frequently appear to be dreadful and grim, or perhaps even calamitous and tragic. Obeying God is worked out within well-defined boundaries of God's revealed will. Trusting God is worked out in an arena that has no boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, or the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstances in which we must frequently trust God. We are always coping with the unknown. Yet it is just as important to trust God as it is to obey Him. When we disobey God, we defy His authority and despise His holiness. But when we fail to trust God, we doubt His sovereignty and question His goodness. In both cases, we cast aspersion upon His majesty and His character. God views our distrust of Him as seriously as He views our disobedience. When the people of Israel were hungry, they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the desert? Can He supply meat for His people? The next two verses tell us, When the Lord heard them, He was very angry, for they did not believe in God or trust in His deliverance. In order to trust God, we must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith, not of sense. And just as the faith of salvation comes through hearing the message of the gospel, Romans 10, 17, so the faith to trust God in adversity comes through the word of God alone. It is only in the scriptures that we find an adequate view of God's relationship to and involvement in our painful circumstances. It is only from the scriptures applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we receive the grace to trust God in adversity. In the arena of adversity, the scriptures teach us three essential truths about God. Truths we must believe if we are to trust Him. They are, God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. God is perfect in love. I'm going to read those three again, and we'll, we'll end this there. God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. God is perfect in love. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to read the passage for today. And I want you to note, especially at the end here, 
of John's statement of God's sovereignty over this. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So first this morning, I want us to see, so the title of the sermon is The Hope in God's Sovereignty, and there's an outline in the bulletin for you. First this morning, we have gone from the triumphal entry to the less than triumphal questioning here. The tri- from the triumphal entry to the less than triumphal questioning. So it seems like it was just yesterday, wasn't it? That these crowds, they were waving palm branches. They were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were so excited because Jesus seemed to have accepted what they had wanted him to be the whole time. They wanted him to be the king. They wanted him to be the Messiah. And he seemed like he went along with it. There at the triumphal entry, when he came riding into Jerusalem, and they were all crying out, and they were just having a great big giant party for Jesus. And it seemed like he was fine with all of it. But there was a big difference in what was happening there at the triumphal entry. And it was a difference that the crowd did not realize. Jesus was not coming to be the king they wanted him to be. He was coming to be the king that they would desperately need, which is a very different thing. And so we talked about how they had their eyes fixed on an earthly throne, and that's where they wanted Jesus to go. And they wanted him to sit down on an earthly throne and take over. But Jesus had his eyes fixed on the cross and on a gruesome, terrible death. And so, they have this great big giant celebration, and then Jesus starts talking. And He talks about His soul being troubled. He talks about seeds falling in the ground, and they have to die first in order for anything to grow And that doesn't really sound like a king who's about to take his throne and and then go after Rome and and be all that they wanted. That's not really what it sounds like. So 
many of the people in the crowd are now sort of looking at each other and they're wondering, what's going on with this guy? What, what's happening here? And then when Jesus was talking, he said something that really got the crowd thinking. He said, when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up, and again, it's like you could almost see the crowd and you can see the wheels that are turning. What is he talking about? And so the crowd begins to realize there's a disconnect here. Things are not what they thought they were. So they come to Jesus to ask him about it. This is a significant conversation. It's the last of the public conversations between Jesus and the crowd. He's about to focus all of his attention until the cross comes on his disciples. So here we have his last proclamation to the crowd as a whole. And so the crowd comes with this question, as they have so many times before, whoever it is. They start with their understanding. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. In other words, Jesus, this is where we're coming from. Just so you can know, we are coming to you with the understanding. We've heard that the Christ, he remains forever. And so here they're, they're referencing the whole of the Old Testament when they say they've heard from the law. Jesus has done this in John as well. There's no one thing necessarily they're referring to, but we've got several options. I'm going to throw out four options here for you. Psalm 89, verses 36, 36 through 37. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what they're thinking when they think of the Son of Man. Ezekiel 37, 24 through 25. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Or the last one here. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So we can see what they're thinking here when they come and they go, okay, our understanding is the Christ will come and reign forever. They're expecting when the son of man shows up, He's going to be there from that point on. That's it. And they also understood this really in one way. As the earthly ruler here to solve their earthly problems. And so because that's how they're coming and that's the way that they understand the Old Testament, they ask this question. They say, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. So they understand that he's talking about death here. Leon Morris, Leon Morris in his commentary says, the crowd evidently discerned that lifting up referred to death. 
if the Son of Man was the Messiah, they could not reconcile that with their understanding of Scripture. How could you say that this Son of Man... Haven't you read Daniel? Haven't you, haven't you read about the Christ? How could you say that he's going to be lifted up? So you see they're starting to put something together. Like it's, it's soaking through their heads that Jesus is saying he's going to die. But they don't get that. They were just celebrating. They were just going crazy at the triumphal entry. But now they're just not sure what's happening. The one that they were waiting for, that one's not going to be dying, guys. That's not how they saw their salvation going down. So they say, who is the Son of Man? Now, I want you to see, perhaps what they're asking here is not quite the same as what we've seen before. Like, look around and tell me who is the individual that's the Son of Man. They seem to think Jesus is. But what they're asking might be more along the lines of this. What do you mean when you talk about the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man to you? Because we have an idea. We know who he is. But it seems like when you talk about him, you're talking about something different. Which is exactly right, isn't it? I mean, that's exactly the case. They, the, we would sit here and be like, yes, now you're getting it. He is talking about something different. What you're saying doesn't line up with what we're seeing in Scripture. So Jesus responds. But Jesus, again, we've got to look at his response. He doesn't respond the way they expect. From his perspective, what he's seeing here by this crowd of Jews who just don't get it, they don't get it. Yeah, they've read the Old Testament. And yeah, they, they picked up on the whole reigning for everything. But they don't get what God is really doing. And when Jesus sees that, he sees something that lines up with Scripture as well. Our second point here is they can't see the light. They can't see the light. Jesus picks up on some Old Testament imagery here. You know, I just mentioned that when the, when the crowd says the Christ remains forever, one of the passages that's probably on their minds is Isaiah 9. Uh, Isaiah 9, which is the, you know, the famous Christmas passage that we read every year at Christmas. That, that prophecy in Isaiah 9, it starts off this way. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So here, Jesus has claimed the fulfillment of that prophecy for himself. In other words, he has said, yes, that is about me. He is the light of the world. These people, his people, they have been in a deep darkness and here he is. The great light. And we did see last week, he is establishing the throne of David forevermore. And it's going to be a glorious. But what they don't understand, what they're not seeing, the disconnect is happening at this point. It will come through 
death. It will come through death. I mean, how many different ways has Jesus said it? He talked about the seed He talked that had to die. He talked about his heart being troubled. We've seen the weight of the glory of establishing his throne. But the crowd, they can't see it. They need the light. They need it. You know, later on in Isaiah, Isaiah will talk about the light in a similar way to Jesus here in John. If you were to look in Isaiah 50, if you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 50, and you were to look at verses 10 and 11, he gives a picture there of people who are trying to walk around in darkness. They have no light. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and have no, has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. So he's saying, if you're walking in the darkness, what do you need? You need a light. You need to be able to see where you're going. One of, one of my favorite book series, we read it, it's kind of morbid, but we, we read it at home. It's called uh, it's Death in Yellowstone, Death in the Grand Canyon, and, and Death in Yosemite. And it's uh, the chronicling of all the deaths that have happened in those national parks in the last hundred years or so. Really educational reading. Actually, like you, if you like being out in the outdoors at all, you can learn a lot from, from reading this. But walking around in the dark off the trail is a great way to die. It's a great way to walk off a cliff. That's a teaser for the book. But it's true. Walking around when you cannot see is dangerous, and you have no idea where you're going. So do you see, though, how Jesus fulfills this? Isaiah says here, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Why? Because the idea is God will give you the light that you need. If you are walking in the darkness, God is going to provide a light. Do you see now how God has done this through Jesus Christ? There's a better light now. It's clear. It's there. It's in front of you. Jesus is sitting here saying to the Jews, I'm here. And here is the awful, poignant, terrible truth. The light is right in front of them but the crowd is still walking around in darkness. This would be like us camping on a, on a night where it's all cloudy, it's perfectly dark. And we go out, and I've got my flashlight. And I pull out my flashlight, hey, hey, hold on a second, we can see. And I, I shine my light, and you're like, you can't see it. You can't see it. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's right there. It's right in front of you. The light's right there. Like, I can see it. Look, over there. Look over there. I can't see it. You're totally blind, even if the light's right in front of you. We see this crowd standing in front of Christ, and they cannot see. 
Jesus is telling them, follow me, walk in the light. While you have the light, walk in it, lest the darkness overtake you. That's what darkness does. Darkness overtakes. Darkness consumes. Darkness surrounds completely. And Jesus has already told us that the people of this world love that darkness more than they love the light. They prefer that darkness. But now we see that even beyond that, there is an inability to see the light. And so here, even after Jesus has spent all his time on our teaching, all his time doing signs, all his time answering questions, all his time showing that he's the Christ, after raising Lazarus from the dead, for goodness sake, after this triumphal entry, we see they're still in the dark when it comes to the crucial point of salvation. The Lamb of God has to die first. Your sins have to be paid for first. The judgment of God against your sins has to happen first. That is so incredibly crucial. We cannot be saved if our sins are not paid for. At that point, they may as well just not have eyes at all because they can't see it. That's where it gets too dark for them. That's where it gets dark for a lot of people. This is the point where it all goes wrong. All that they can see, all that so many people can see, is the earthly, is the physical. When asked what's wrong with the world, the answers are earthly answers. The answers are physical answers. I can tell you what's wrong with my life. I don't have enough of this. I don't have that. I didn't get this that I wanted. This dream never happened. I don't. This isn't happening. Our answers to the questions of salvation are often so earthly. They're so temporary. But Jesus did not come at this moment for those things. Those things that they're focused on. And so they're still asking the same question over and over again, despite all the evidence to the contrary. They're still asking because they don't believe that there could be anything more important than the earthly things that are right in front of them. They don't think there can be anything more important than having a son of man who comes and rescues them from the situation they're in right now. Oppressed. Under the control of another nation. And so they can't think any other way than nothing could be more important to Jesus than that, right? And how often do we do the same thing? Because we would say nothing is more important to my heart right now than X. You fill in the blank. We think that's what Jesus ought to prioritize as well. But this is where the blindness hits every time. When Jesus comes with a different agenda with his eyes fixed on the cross instead of on the earthly throne. They just can't see straight anymore. There were two different groups celebrating two very different things at the triumphal entry. And it may have looked the same, but it wasn't. 
Jesus was focused on something else. When you're blind like this, you can't see that the greatest problem we have is the problem that comes from sin. That's exactly the problem Jesus came to deal with. That's exactly where the darkness hits, and that's exactly where the light is shining. On the question of sin and judgment. No other problem but the one that stems from the sin and rebellion that's in this world and that's in our hearts. Now, this would be a good moment for us to stop and ask, have you, have you latched on to other things and you think they are your greatest problem? Perhaps it's a person. You've decided this person is your greatest problem. Perhaps it's a, it's a situation. Perhaps you have the attitude of, if I, if I could only get to this point or if I could only get out of this thing, But look at what comes next. Look look in verses 37 through 44. Because John diagnoses the problem of the blindness here for us. And he references Isaiah again here. This is our third and final point. We're going to call this point the hope in God's sovereignty. So we saw that they went from a triumphal entry to a less than triumphal questioning. We saw that they just can't see, even when the light's right in front of them. but I want you to see the hope in God's sovereignty. Although it may not sound that way at first. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, They could not believe. They could not believe. Why? Because the prophet had said, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The prophet prophesied that this would happen. And so John says, therefore, they couldn't believe. And he goes on, for again, Isaiah said, he, that's God, has blinded their hearts, their eyes, and hardened their heart. He's done that. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, for, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Which, by the way, that's another form of blindness that he just mentioned right there. He just said, there's many who saw. They're not stupid. There's many who made the connection. There's many who did believe. Oh, 
what he's saying, it does make sense. That is who he is. Oh, he did raise Lazarus from the dead. But they wouldn't confess it because they were more afraid of the Pharisees, which is another form of blindness, isn't it? We don't see clear. <laughs> you can't be seeing clearly when you fear the Pharisees more than you fear God. <laughs> you can't be seeing rightly when the fear of man, of their opinions of you, of what they can do to you, when that fear of man drives you away from God, you are, you are blind to who God truly is, aren't you? This is where things get harder. Because it's not just that they're blind. It's not just that they're focused on themselves. It's not just that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. But John says they are doing exactly what God has willed. This is the sovereignty of God on display here. They walked in darkness and they couldn't simply see on their own power. They were not able to see because God would not let them see. Isn't that what Isaiah just said? He blinded their eyes. He hardened their hearts unless they would see with their eyes and they would understand with their hearts and they would turn and I would heal them. God has done this. We see this balance here of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. The people are held responsible because they won't believe. But you and I have to notice they can't believe until what happens? They can't believe until God acts on their behalf. They can't believe until they're resurrected. They can't believe until the Holy Spirit works in them and opens their eyes and convicts them of their sin. They can't believe without God's work on their behalf. This tells us a few things. One, it tells us that right here in this story, when the people are rejecting Jesus here, despite all the evidence that they should be seeing, despite all the evidence they should be believing, that does not mean that God has lost control of the situation. John wants that to be very clear to you and I. Just because these people are not getting it does not mean that God has lost control. By quoting these passages from Isaiah, John is telling us that God is still sovereign even over this moment. John's not ever going to let you forget that, will he? John will never let you forget this, even if it's hard to understand, even if it is hard for us to comprehend. John will not ever let you look away from God's sovereign power over his creation and over his people. In John's mind, it is clear, he is God. So just because Jesus' own people have shown with saddening clarity, they've made it clear that they aren't believing in him and they don't get it, even when he raises somebody from the dead, that does not mean that God has lost any of his power 
over the situation. It does not mean that they can overthrow His will. It's impossible. The second thing that this does for us is it puts this all in perspective for us. This is what it is to be the creature and not the creator. Or another way to say this is, this is what it is to be the clay and not the potter. To be the one who is made by God, not the one who determines how God makes us. We have, from Genesis chapter 1, had no control over how God has made us. We didn't get any input on the initial creation. We didn't get to say, Lord, no, that's not how I will be made. Thank you very much. We still, despite what our culture might imagine, we still don't have the power to tell God, no, that's not how I'll be created. Thank you very much. We are the clay. I've referenced this quote several times in our Sunday school class, but the way that John Calvin starts off his classical work of theology, the Institutes, I think is really helpful here. He says, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds... Which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. Our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. When we come on a passage like John here commenting on Isaiah and saying, you guys have to understand, they can't see. And from their perspective, they don't like what they're hearing. They're rejecting it. Their hearts are not here. They're going after other things. But you also have to see that what they are doing is exactly what God has willed. John will not let us forget it. And so that should make us feel humble. It should make us feel really small. It should put things in the right perspective for us. When John talks about God, he doesn't talk about a being that we get to define. Like these Jews are trying to do. These Jews are trying to define for themselves who the Son of Man, who the Christ is, in a way that would work for them. We don't get to do that. John is talking about God in God's own absolute self-existence. He's talking about God in God's own wild, untamable power. This is who God is, and John's not going to let you believe anything else. Does it make us uncomfortable? Well, it should. It really should. It should make us see that He is God. This is who God is. But it is filled with hope. It's filled with hope. 
the hope is here in God's sovereignty. Because Jesus is here in this moment, isn't he? We can't lose sight of what Jesus is here for. He's not going to be turned aside by crowds that want him to be here for something else. And, and he's not going to be turned aside by you either. When you want him to be a different kind of God than he is. And you want him to be a different kind of Savior than he is. He will not be turned aside because there is no other salvation that brings eternal life than the salvation that Jesus is bringing right now. That's the hope in God's sovereignty. That's the hope for you and I. Not just to walk away from here going, oh my goodness, I can't control God. And that's terrifying. And I don't know what to do about it. But to go, oh my goodness, I can't control God. But look at what he said he's going to do. I don't need to control him. What do I need to do? Trust him. Trust him. When he says that he is here to die for the sins of the world, trust that that's what we need more than anything else. When he says that he will take on the judgment and condemnation from God. He will be the perfect spotless lamb. Christian, trust him. Are you holding on to guilt? Are you holding on to condemnation because you are not trusting that God is able to do what he has said? Our hope is in the fact that God is to us wild and untamable. He is so far outside of our controls and so beyond our ability to define him. He is the potter, we are the clay. There is so much hope in that for you and I. All our hope actually rests in that. Because Jesus is here. He's going to make a way for people's eyes to be open, not just the Jews, but the whole of the world. And it's not about our glory, it's about His glory. So we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. What a wonderful opportunity. What a weird thing that we do that we would regularly eat this bread, that we would regularly drink this drink, and we would call it the body, ew. The blood, ew. What a weird thing that we do. Why do we do this? We do this because it is a statement. It is a statement that our greatest problem, our hopelessness, our despair, our darkness 
was all addressed, resolved, and taken care of completely by the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. We are saying when we do this, what we're about to do here in a minute, we're saying this is the solution to the problem that will destroy us. This is the hope for the hopelessness that will lead us to eternal despair. This is everything. It may not always make sense to us. And it may not feel like it to us sometimes. Because we live in a world that's full of trials and tribulations. We live in a world that's still groaning under the weight of sin. Jesus is promised to come back. But in the meantime, while he's calling his sheep, there are going to be times, Christians, let's be honest. There's going to be times when our hearts are going to try and tell us that's not the solution to the problem. Let me tell you what the problem is. The problem is this thing that's happening in my life. The problem is this thing that I'm going through. And those might be real problems. We don't want to minimize that. Those might be real problems. But what do they draw us to? They draw us to trust in God. What ultimately grounds our trust in God? How do we know that we can run to God with those problems? Because of this. Because our greatest problem has been handled by God. He is our Father. He has given us everything that we need. So, see His sovereignty. Submit to His sovereignty. And trust in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Father, we see the, the Jews here, and I know I see myself, and I'm sure that we here in this room, so many of us, we see the ways in which we act the same. We want to define what kind of Savior we would like because we want to define what our greatest problems are. And we want to define what the solution is. And we may even use parts of Scripture to do all of it, Lord. I pray that we see how that is a, a blindness. You are God. We're not. What you say is our greatest problem is absolutely our greatest problem. What you say is the only solution is the only solution. Father, as little children here, let us trust in you. And find so much hope that what would have killed us would have left us for an eternity of suffering. We must no longer fear because we have Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.